My name is uh, Natalie Bennett. I'm the leader of the Green Party of England and Wales, which I've been since um, uh, September 12 months ago. Uh, so you people don't have to sit there wondering the accent is originally Australian. Uh, my first degree was agricultural science, which partly means I have a quite geeky interest in soils, which I got to uh, exercise on a visit to the Somerset levels recently. Uh, and it also means put the Australian and the ag science together. And it means I do believe that I'm the British political leader who knows how to shear a sheep. What would you say were the key defining characteristics of Green Party politics? Uh, I put the, the, the social and environmental aspects of our policy and the fact that they fit uh, together indivisibly. I mean, basically, to sort of summarise in, in one word the kind of world we're trying to, one sentence, the kind of world we're trying to achieve is we need a society in which everybody, originally, let's start with thinking about Britain, but eventually the world, has access to a decent quality of resources. Um, but we have to do that within the limits of our one planet. And I'm sure that no one listening to this needs to be told that currently in Britain, for example, we're all collectively using the resources of three planets. So that means we really have to fundamentally transform our society, our politics, our economics, have real change to the point where we get that adequate resources for everybody within the limits of the planet. And um, how would you summarise the current state of British politics? What does the, and what does the rise of UKIP tell us about that? Um, I think you, we have a failed political model. You can point to the kind of technical aspects, if you like, of the fact that we have an unelected House of Lords in the 21st century. You can point to the fact that we have you know, extremely low turnout in elections and widespread public satisfaction. Uh, but I suppose the, the, the positive side of this is that this is clearly, as indeed with our economics uh, and the state of our society, is clearly an unstable situation and it can't continue. Uh, UKIP is one example of that situation. And you know, UK, the rise of UKIP is, is a symbol of dissatisfaction, particularly on the right. And things are going to change. And you know, one of the interesting possibilities coming up is it's still not the, high, not the most likely outcome, but it's possible that if the Scots vote for independence uh, in September... Uh, someone at a meet, public meeting once asked me, uh, but, you know, won't this, this mean constitutional chaos? There's so many things that haven't been, questions that haven't been answered. And I said, great, some creative chaos is exactly what we need. And if, you know, for example, the Scots did vote for uh, independence, then we'd almost have to create a written constitution for England and Wales and, that, and, 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 and the remainder of the United Kingdom. And that would create all sorts of possibilities to really reshape the, the form of our political system. More broadly than that, of course, we also need to change the content very greatly. And that's, in some ways, a bigger project. Um, the Greens are the only party that takes a stance against fracking. What, why do you think that nobody else will? I, I think that's a really interesting question. I, mean, I think it's, it's really quite surprising that the Lib Dems in particular haven't taken that stance. You know, the fact that Ed Davey not just is going along with what you might, you know, the, the coalition in the coalition that Lib Dems have gone along with a lot of things, but the fact that he twice came out and said, I love shale gas in case anyone missed it the first time is really quite astonishing. As to why, I think it's partly a function of the fact that um, the oil and gas companies have a great deal of lobbying influence, both in Westminster and indeed in Brussels. Uh, I think it's partly a function of the fact that there's a lot of people in government who really can't imagine the world changing. They just think that the future looks much like the past. Um, and yeah, I, I, and I think it really is quite astonishing because there, there really is a, a total fantasy being pursued around fracking. I mean, it got very little attention, certainly not, I think, the attention it deserves, but David Cameron came out and said, oh, we're going to be fracking by the end of the year, and all the fracking companies went, what? No, we're not. 
Um, and, and, and there's just simply, you know, Lord Brown of Quadrilla says that um, in five years' time we'll know if there's frackable gas in Britain. Yet everyone's running around like this is an established industry that, that, that's already pumping gas out. So they just, it just really does show a really quite disturbing detachment from actual reality in, in the whole way that, that fracking is talked about. Uh, the Greens have one MP and UKIP don't have any MPs, yet they appear, particularly on the BBC, far more often. What's what's going on? Why 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 did the Green Party struggle to to gain the sort of uh, media coverage that that UKIP does? I, I, I'm always slightly hesitant to to attack, particularly the BBC, because they come under attack from the right wing that would like to abolish them altogether, and we certainly want to keep the BBC. Um, but I think you know, certainly you know UKIP has the poll figures, can point to the poll figures, and that's a fact that can't be denied. But I think there is also a sort of in much of the media, and it's shaped by the by the right wing tycoon-owned media, a, an assumption that the sort of things we're saying are sort of radical and way out there. And yet, actually, when you look at it, things like, for example, we want to bring the railways back into public hands, and Caroline Lucas has a private member's bill before Parliament to do just that. And you look at the, the last survey I saw, 68% of the public were fully in favour of that. So we have this radical idea that's backed by no other political party, backed by 68% of the public. And if you think of you know, a whole range of other issues like um, keeping the NHS publicly owned and publicly run, that's something that we're you know, always hammering away on. And the journalist always reacts like you've said something really radical. And yet I'm sure there's very strong public support for that position too. There was a piece in the, in the New Statesman recently about the uh, debates that will accompany the next election and arguing that the, the, the Tories were very keen to see the Greens as part of that because they hoped that it would uh, you would split the the Labour vote. Uh, I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Uh, I think that's that's the reason given. I think it might have something more to do with me being a something of a um a, a barrier against Farage for Mr Cameron actually. But you know, I would obviously be delighted to take place. I, I said to the BBC debates any any time, anywhere, any place, and I mean that almost literally. Um, you know, we have a very strong case to present, very strong policies. We'd be delighted to give them a chance to present it to the wider public. And we actually know that when, you know, in places where we have strong local parties, where we have people, we're able to really put lots of boots on the ground and people get to really understand what the Green Party stands for, we win strong support. So, you know, I, I will be delighted to take part in any debate. And as I keep telling the, um, uh, the broadcasters, it's the only way they're going to get any um, agenda balance. <laughs> Uh, does the Green Party really believe that economic growth and tackling climate change on the scale required are compatible? And might the Greens be the first political party to explicitly question economic growth? I think we, we already have, although I think I, I'm very reluctant to get bogged down. I think it's very easy to get bogged down into growth-degrowth arguments. I think we just basically, I'm not going to say we should stop measuring GDP, but we should stop thinking about it very much. And what we should be thinking about is doing the, all the kind of things that we need to do, you know, which is improving public transport, improving walking and cycling facilities, insulating homes, building renewable energy, all of that sort of thing, and stop doing lots of the things that we know we can't continue environmentally to do and which often make absolutely no economic sense at all, like expanding or building new airports and all of those sorts of things. So I'm very taken with the idea of what's been suggested as the sort of traffic light system where you have you know, maybe five or six measures that measure social well-being, that measure environmental well-being, and you say we're going to keep in those indicators, you know, above the minimum level, and we can, we kind of want you know make sure that each one of those doesn't get below that minimum level, 
and yeah, you know, one of those is is the, is the foundation of environmental standards. And you know, you often hear Caroline and me say that we have to remember that the economy is a complete subset of the environment. They're not two separate things. So, is an industrial society possible without growth? Um, I, I think what we we're heading towards, what we have to head towards, is, is a very different shape of society. So, you know, globalization has very clearly hit buffers. And if we think of the sort of extreme example of it, that giant ship that arrives every year bringing vast amounts of plastic tat from China, most of which will be in landfills sort of three months later, um, you know, what we need to do is, is relocalize our economy, bring manufacturing and food production back to Britain to bring... Um, uh, to, to build, rebuild around small-scale manufacturing, building things that last. And, and I think one of the things that, at the moment, where we are from the point we are now, this looks hard to imagine, but I go back to the fact that my grandparents, um, when they got married, they bought a suite of furniture, very good furniture, probably very expensive by the standards of the time, uh, and it lasted them. They celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary with the same furniture, and they fully expected to pass it on, on to their son, as, you know, the really good furniture. And that's the kind of direction we need to go in rather than the kind of stuff you buy from a, um, a certain Swedish store that I won't mention that sort of, you know, falls apart after a year or two and you go and buy another set. From a green perspective, is the challenge of staying below two degrees best served by being in or out of Europe? Uh, in Europe, very much. I mean, Europe, one of the vital things that Europe does is, is set a foundation of environmental standards. And that's obviously important to Europe in terms of um, the fact that we have, um, you know, all countries in all states in Europe are inter interdependent on each other. If someone dumps a whole lot of pollutants into one river, it's going to affect other states as well. But in terms of, of the broader um, climate change aspect, you know, Europe has been, you know, an insufficient but somewhat effective force in, in starting to, to really get people to think about these issues. And it's really important if we set the foundations of standards in Europe, and Europe then is a force in international negotiations, that's much greater than we, we would be if we were on our own. At the local scale, uh, in some communities such as Froome, uh, groups of transition-minded people have successfully run for the town council and made big changes, but as independents rather than as, as Greens. What's your sense of the appropriateness or not of party politics at the local scale? Can it be self-defeating? I think I think it's very useful because I mean the, 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 you're having a Green Party label explains to people where you're coming from. If you just look at a label that says independent, you know, independent means a wide range of things, ranging from people who think that uh, UKIP are a bit soft and wussy uh, to people who you know are basically indistinguishable from Greens. I, I've got no problem with with people doing that. Particularly, you know, there are many parts of the country where. Green would be seen as too radical, and people stand as independents, very green-minded, and get elected on that basis. But I think you know, what what having people standing for the Green Party does is it means you know we have a whole set of suite of policies democratically chosen by a large number of people, members of the party, carefully considered. There's a whole background of framework of support there, and you know obviously someone who's an independent can form views very much on local issues and has their own views on national issues. But they are just their own views, whereas if you have a whole party, particularly like the Green Party, where we have democratically formed policy with lots of people and experts putting into it, that really, really is an important and useful support structure. What's your sense of what a Green government could do at a national level that would best support the work that transition groups are doing at the local scale? I think if we're going to transform our economy, and actually I was at the Bristol People's Assembly um, uh, last weekend, 
and had, had a really interesting discussion there about how do we make the transformation happen. And one of the key things is at the moment, big multinational companies just ride utterly roughshod over the rights of their workers. They ride roughshod over the environment. Uh, they ride roughshod over local communities. Um, we had in Camden, where I live in central London, we had a, a Green Party pop-up shop that was opposite one of those, one of the main chain's mini stores. And, you know, it was doing things like coning off the road for, for an HGV-sized space for 24 hours a day. And then sort of four or five times a day, the HGV would draw up, park up illegally, and they weren't entitled to cone off the road either. And so they were just basically seizing public space. And so what we really have to do is to force, you know, multinational companies, big companies to behave like decent corporate citizens, not allow them to trample all over the, the law and their workers' rights. And by doing that, what we then do is, is, is allow, you know, cooperatives, small local businesses, local economies, a real chance to compete against them. Because at the moment, it's just a totally hopelessly unlevel playing field. And green politics and I suppose the environmental movement and to tr transition as well to some extent have generally failed to engage beyond what people call the post-materialist or the sort of, uh, I suppose, kind of middle class uh, constituencies. What's your sense of how best to widen the appeal further? I, I think we've really got to talk about the transformation and, and how it works for people, not just how it works for the kind of physical environment. I mean, one of, the, one of the Green Party policies which is getting real traction and, and is starting to make a difference and excites lots of people is the idea of citizens' income or basic income, uh, which is the idea that basically there's a safety net. Everyone gets a payment every week that means you have your subsistence guaranteed and you don't have to worry. And I think trying to find ways to take away people's worry and fear at the moment is really critically important because if, with, the, with the welfare net, with all the holes that have been rent in it, um, people are really living in fear. I mean, again, at the Bristol People's Assembly, one of the other speakers was talking about someone affected by the bedroom tax who now feels they don't have the right to actually have a home anymore. And we have to restore people's sense of security and give them the sense that a green society is one where they will feel secure and safe. We're not taking things away from them. We're guaranteeing them the basics. And the last question is, what, what would, how would you describe your vision of if in if in 20 years time we've done everything that's necessary and we've successfully managed to stay below two degrees what what does uh, describe the world of, of 20 years time well i think first of all we, we have um ho homes that are warm and comfortable and you know we're not going to get them all to passive house standard but heading as fast in that direction as fast as possible um we have you know, vastly more locally grown food so every each town uh, city, village even, has, has a ring of market gardens around it and a large amount of the food on your plate has come, you know, less than 10 miles. Not everything. I mean, I'm not talking about autarky. I personally like my coffee and some spices, but, you know, the vast bulk of the food on your plate comes from there. You're wearing clothes that, that you you will expect to last for a long period of time. And I think if you, if you go back historically, often people, you know, once a year, summer and winter, went shopping and bought one or two new items of clothes. That's the kind of situation we're in. But it's a situation, I think, hopefully, where we have to offer people a better life so there's less stuff in it, but people have more time and more sense of security. So we're looking at dropping working hours down um, and, you know, in some of that working hours time, you might be growing some of your own food rather than buying it. Uh, and you're, you're not worrying about where your next meal's coming from and we have no more food banks. <laughs>